So Money episode 596, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host, Mandy Woodruff. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. It's Friday, July 7th, my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, mom. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so we're going to take some time now to turn the tables, make you the star, answer your money questions, and you've got a lot of them, and some of you have actually voiced in your questions this week. Thank you for using SpeakPipe. I love this little tool. It's not super high-tech, but it's working. People are able to leave their questions on the go. I hear you guys like on a treadmill sometimes, driving, multitasking, leaving your questions. It's fun to kind of get a sense of, you know, who my listeners are through their environments and hearing them on the go. So thanks to everybody who's been doing that using SpeakPipe. But of course, if you don't want to use the audio recorder, just you can just type it in. Go to soanypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh and type away. This week, I'm bringing back a guest on So Money who's also a former colleague and also a friend. We have Mandy Woodruff with us. Mandy, welcome. Hey, Noosh. It's so good to be back on. You hear that? She called me Noosh. So we're really friends. This is like a legit Yeah, I know her real well. I'm in the (laughs) Noosh zone. (laughs) It's legit. It's real. Mandy, how are you? Congratulations on your recent wedding. I haven't talked to you in a while. What's up, girlfriend? Good. Well, you know, it's like the post-wedding budget recovery. So that means I don't have a social life for, the, for like the <laughs> next few months. Um, no, I'm good. I'm just like getting back in a groove. We had an amazing honeymoon and sort of getting back to business as usual. So you're really not doing much? Is this really like uh, reeling in from uh, the wedding expenses? Was it that Was it that much of a budget killer? Actually, no, I was really proud. No, I mean, we paid for everything cash and everything was sort of paid off. What really killed me is the honeymoon. I didn't put as much work. I think after all of the wedding planning and like being so meticulous, I was like, just get the hotel. Like, I don't want to shop around. And we did 16 days in Europe. We did Italy and Barcelona. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. So that's a lot of days. And I think my eyes were bigger than my pocketbook in that case. Like we, we booked this whole trip and I think we just, we definitely spent more than I would have wanted to, but I mean, I think it was worth it. It was an amazing experience, but just having come back from that, it's sort of like, okay, let's just chill out for a minute. Um, and also like, I don't know about you, but I don't know, people don't really talk about, or at least I haven't heard people talk about this in their thirties, but the more my the friends around us start having like kids and getting married. And I know we're just got married too. like no one hangs out anymore. And so <laughs> like financially and then just naturally, like I kind of just sort of been like, you know, uh, focusing on work and like not socializing as much. But I, I'm like, man, it's so hard to like get your friends together now. It's, it's hard. No one responds. It's, it's sad. I'm like, do I need to have basically my social calendar is like, baby birthdays, baby baptisms, <laughs> baby showers. We we have a different, I mean, you go through these phases. And when my husband and I got married and we moved to our current home, we live in an apartment building in Brooklyn. And it seemed like there were two types of people who not only socialize, but like you don't even, like even just saying hello to one another in an elevator, the parents 
were in one camp and then all the everybody else was in another camp and you weren't allowed to say hello to parents until you had your own kids. Like it was it was that much of a <laughs> divide. We felt like once we became a family and had kids, then we could suddenly have friends in the building <laughs> and be accepted. You're socially. like in the club now. Yeah. I think what it is now that I'm a parent, I, I feel like you, time is limited as it's always limited. Everyone has the same amount of time. But when you are a parent, when you have a chance to not be parenting, you and those days are few and farther in between, usually you have to pay for childcare and if you want to go out. And so you have to be really careful and, and, and purposeful in how you spend your time away from home. And like tonight, my husband and I are going to go see Hamilton. So tonight? Will... Oh my God. Yes. Have so you seen exciting. it? Oh yeah. I saw, I got it for my husband's birthday last year, but I, I bought tickets like eight months in advance. Yeah. So um, we it was, yeah, oh, we... you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Oh, people love it. There's not one <laughs> person that doesn't need... like this show. It's like the only, and I go to a lot of Broadway shows. It lives up to the hype. I can't, I can't overhype it because it's going to be as good as, you know, as good as the hype is warranted. Oh gosh, I'm so excited. So yeah, this is our one big outing. It's our combination wedding anniversary gift, my uh, Valentine's Day gift, like all these gifts wrapped in one. We have to get like all this childcare for the day and for the night. And guess what? We're not going out for the next six weeks. That's probably what's going to end up happening or the whole summer. We'll see, <laughs> depending on how dinner goes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally get it. I think I've learned how to like know my limitations as like a childless like a friend to all my friends who have babies now, you know, and I, I know when I, when I, I know my place basically um, and when not to sort of chime in and when to understand when they don't have babies. But I think when they have babies to worry about, but I think it's like, it's just, you know, it's natural, but it's also, you do sort of feel that shift and you're like, okay, things are different. Mm-hmm. I guess we have to wait a few years till like the kids can take care of themselves and then, you know, also, everyone can sort of be out more. I don't know about you, but I also, feel like my friend circle got smaller when I became, when I entered my thirties, not just because I got married and had kids, but because I feel like you collect a lot of friends in your twenties. It's your time to be social and you kind of have the friends that you don't love, but they're fun to go out with. And then life gets more serious and more settled and time is super valuable. You really start to differentiate and figure out who your real friends are, who you would rather not spend time with. And it works itself out sometimes that way. Hopefully, you don't have to ghost anyone, although I have done that. Oh, that's my least favorite thing people do. <laughs> I hate flaking. <laughs> no, I, I've absolutely done that. My problem is that my husband has as many great friends as I do, and it's really annoying because that means it's <laughs> it's harder because <laughs> there's so many more people in our social circle than before. And I mean, I got lucky in that sense. I think it's great. You know, he has such a great support system, but yeah. It's a, it's a pro and a con sometimes, especially around wedding season, seven weddings this year. All right. Whoa. I have a whole, I have a wedding wedding budget. Spun around (laughs) seven weddings. I don't, I don't even want to go there. Two of them are going to be international. (laughs) Oh no. I mean, great, but oh no. Yeah. That's my travel now. Weddings and baby oh, stuff. Lord. Yeah. I'm glad I never had this that many 30. friends to go to seven weddings in one year. <laughs> I was never that I popular. I should have I shed them sooner. Yeah, man. Ghost it. Where were we? Let's go to our questions. We have three speak pipe audio questions in a row. The first is from David from Denver, Colorado. Let's listen to David. Hey, Farnoosh. Uh, my name is David. I'm from Denver, Colorado. 
Um, I had a question for you actually about paying off debt. Uh, I wanted to see what the break-even point is for using a no-interest balance uh, transfer on a credit card. Uh, for example, if you carry a student loan at 7% and you want to take a, a no-interest balance transfer and you pay 3% up front, um, I was curious if you can walk us through maybe the math you would use to uh, calculate it, how the interest rates are similar or if one is a better deal than the other. So, for example, I imagine if you pay 3% up front, it's probably equal to paying something like 3 point something percent uh, at the end of the year or as an annual percentage. So I didn't know if you would have some time to be able to explain that to people so they can tell when it makes sense to take a balance transfer uh, to pay off a credit card or not. So anyway, big fan of the podcast and thank you very much. And while I have you, I also heard you mention that you were interested in having people on to co-host an episode with you. And I would really like to do that. I'm working on my CPA license right now. Um, I did one other podcast, uh, The Successful Side Gig, and I really enjoyed it. So I thought maybe you might still be looking for somebody. So thank you very much and talk to you later. Bye. All right. Well, David, uh, follow up with me as far as co-hosting. I would love to learn more about you. Email me, farnoosh at farnoosh.tv. Tell me uh, a little bit more about yourself, why you'd like to co-host. And I open this to everybody. I'm, I'm starting to have co-hosts every Friday. Mandy obviously is uh, my latest co-host, but I love picking from the, you know, the authentic listener who we, we've never met. We don't know each other. We're not friends, but you love the show and you'd like to test the, the co-hosting waters and come on the show with me. And if you love money, even better. His question, Mandy, I mean, he's really giving us some homework here, right? And just quickly, I did follow up with David to get some more numbers out of him. I wanted to know a little bit more about the situation. He, he mentioned, Manny, that this is a five-year personal loan that he's dealing with currently, and he's interested in a two-year balance transfer offer. And that transfer offer, as he said, carries a 3% upfront fee. Did happen to do some math because I knew this question was coming at us. Did you do any math? Of course I did. Yeah. Of course actually. you did. Magnify Money, we have a... <laughs> well, I stole our <laughs> Oh, own. right. Cheated. So everybody, I Mandy cheated. works at Magnify Money, which tell us about Magnify Money. Yeah. Um, I'm the executive editor for Magnify Money. It's a personal finance startup. It's been around for a few years now. And basically, it's the it's one of the best destinations if you're shopping for credit cards or personal loans and you want to find out where are the best rates, what are the best options for me, what are the pros and cons. That is how Magnify Money started. I came on last year to um, bring in journalism and start doing more personal finance news and coverage, which has been really fun. Um, but one of my favorite things that we have are these tools and these calculators. So I definitely tapped our personal loan calculator for, for David's question, for sure. So what did you find? I did some math, but I'm curious, since I'm not a robot, you have the robots at Magnify Money. You have the calculators. <laughs> what did the robots find okay. out? Yeah, we're really testing our systems here. So he's asking about balance transfers, which I'm really excited about because actually my husband, we just he just did a balance transfer um, for you know he was about to his this zero interest rate on his this furniture card that he's had pre Mandy pre you know dating or being with like a personal finance reporter um, and it was gonna the introductory rate was gonna be over and he needed to he was like where are some zero percent balance transfer options for me um, so this is all fresh for me. Um, and one of the first things he asked about, just like David is, how do I figure out 
if it's a good deal when I'm going to get charged a percentage upfront, which many, many balance transfer options do. And so for him, he's asking about 3%. So right off the bat on a $12,000 loan, if that's the balance, um, that's $360. He's going to get charged off the bat. Um, if he takes a balance transfer offer that comes with a fee, um, I don't know if you know this though, but there are some balance transfer offers that have no fees. And that's where I would say, um, that's the first place I was, that's the first thing I'd recommend to David is look for a balance transfer offer that does not charge you that nasty 3%, 5% upfront fee. Um, and I actually know a really good one. This is the one my husband used. It's the Barclay card ring MasterCard. It is 0% for 15 months and no fees no balance transfer fees and it's awesome. Um, the only quid pro quo is that you need to have pretty good credit, like over a 720 to qualify, but that's probably the one of, if not the best balance transfer option on the market right now. Uh, I agree. I also like Chase Slate's card. I work with Chase Slate, so that is a shameless plug, but truly yeah, they're great too. That's- they're one of the gold standards in this category because of the the no fee but you usually do need like you said really good credit and also you sometimes have to make the transfer within a window in order to qualify mm-hmm. for the no fee so just read the fine print so you're right Mandy $360 up front if he goes with this zero interest balance transfer the thing is he's asking about like a break even point at which point you know if he were to start paying interest at what point is he basically paying as much interest on the 0% balance transfer than his current loan here's the thing david if you're going to do this imagine that you have a 2 year clock deadline you're not your plan is not to continue using this card after the 2 year period where you're getting 0% interest because after that, likely the interest rate will jump to whatever the current market rate is. Like it could be 15, 16%, sometimes higher. And you want to be able to get out of this debt, right? Get out of this loan. And so take advantage of this two-year period where you're paying no interest. Yes, it's going to cost $360 to do it, but I looked at how much interest he's paying if he sticks with the current loan. Did your calculators get this? $2,256 in interest. That's exactly what I got to. Yeah. Bingo. So right off the bat, we know that he's potentially saving close to $2,000 by going with a balance transfer right. rather than sticking with this this other loan. The My caveat question is, is his monthly payment's going to go up, right? It's going to go up to like 500 a month on this 0% balance transfer if he does want to pay uh, enough so that he's done in two years. Yeah. And I hope, I mean, I feel like if you're going to do a balance transfer, that's got to be the the goal. And I think a lot of people who do balance transfers, they sort of see them as a band-aid and okay, I just want to like get this off my back for 15, 18 months. Um, and they do it and it feels great. And they have this sense of like, yes, I'm free, but you're, you're not really free. You're just sort of swapping out one debt for another debt. Um, so and we get tons of questions like, you know, this balance transfer is about to expire. I haven't finished paying it off. What's going to happen? And you're right. If you don't pay it off within that time, you're kind of going to be back to square one because you're going to get start uh, start getting charged that, that super high interest rate. Right. So if he's already qualified for this card, I'd say go for it, David, because again, they don't usually take people with bad credit. If you've gotten accepted, that means you've got good credit. And I'd really love to see you debt-free in two years. And 
Yeah, I would love to have you co-host with me. Just, you know, email me. Let me know a little bit more about yourself. That's Farnoosh at Farnoosh.tv. All right, Mandy, thanks for your calculators there. And let's move on to Ray. She's a 47-year-old female who has some questions about saving money. She's got a goal to buy a home one day. Let's hear her out. Hi, my name is Ray. I'm a 47-year-old African-American female with only $40,000 in a pre-tax retirement account. I do have a frozen pension, but because those aren't guaranteed, I don't consider that when I look at overall net worth. I'm investing 15% into retirement. I earn $60,000 a year, give or take. And I do have an employer match, but that's not part of the 15%. I currently owe $25,000 on a vehicle with no other debt. My concern right now is I only have $1,200 in cash in a savings account, and I don't have enough money or any money for a down payment on a home. I don't own a home, as you can tell from my last statement, and I'm trying to figure out what the next step should be. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the average African-American household only has a net worth of $12,000. And I want to break that cycle. Should I be focusing on increasing my emergency fund to maybe six to 12 months? But if I do that, that means I can't afford to also focus on putting money aside for a home. But would you just focus on paying off the vehicle debt? Any suggestions or guidance would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. All right. I don't know, Mandy. It sounds like she really needs to build up that emergency savings before anything else happens. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is sort of the pickle I feel like a lot of um, prospective homeowners are in. Like you feel like you kind of have some money set aside, but you have all these crazy big goals and you're not sure um, where to where to start. One thing I immediately did when I heard her question is think about her debt to income ratio, because when you are um, thinking about applying for a mortgage, that's the first thing a lender is going to look at. I mean, that is the number to beat all numbers because it's going to tell them whether or not you can qualify for most mortgages. Um, Like, you know, about the DTI, right? You guys bought a house. Yes. Yeah. And this is basically um, the debt to income ratio. Just tell the lender. So this is how much debt you have each month that you have to pay off. And here's how much income you have. And in most cases, it has to be under 43%, 40, 43% for most mortgages. It can vary by one or two points. Which is um, actually so quite high, I think, to be qualifying for a mortgage. But that's just my two cents. I think banks can actually be a little too lax. Yeah. I mean, when you look, when you get pre-qualified, they're like, you qualify for all this money. And you're like, but you know, I have to pay that back, right? Like that's not something that I actually want to do. Um, still it's in 2017, I think banks are over lending, but anyway, that's another conversation, but you're right. I think that in order to present yourself as a stellar borrower, especially for a mortgage, you want to have great credit. You want to make sure that you have a nice savings cushion that's on top of the down payment that you're going to bring to the close. So take this time to really, really beef up your cash reserves. And I think saving 15% into retirement's pretty good. I think that's, if you just keep status quo That's amazing, actually. That's amazing, 15%. I mean, that's like, I think that's what most people 
typically spend. Um, you know, some mortgages, I've, I actually reached out to a, um, a loan officer who does some writing for us, and some mortgages require a couple of months cash reserves anyway. So, I mean, you, you want to go into a lender's office already having money in the bank um, in, a, in a cash reserve fund. And um, so, I, I don't know, I feel like saving for a down payment at the same time you're saving for your emergency savings. What I do, because we're saving for a house too, is so I have a separate savings account. I have my Ally account. And then I just open up another savings account under Ally. Um, and I am contributing to both at the same time. Um, luckily, we've sort of hit this. We've hit the 12-month mark for our savings. So now we've sort of put everything we were putting into that account into our down payment account now, which has been, for me, it was it was good to actually put a label on it and then um, sort of set up automatic savings. So I wasn't forgetting about it and using that money for you know more Hamilton tickets or anything. Well, you actually segued us quite nicely to our next question from Nicole. She has a question, and we'll listen to her in a second, about how to compartmentalize her money. And is is there a way to overdo it? So let's listen to her question. Hey, Parnoosh. So my question is about managing money. I am a super micromanager. I love to, secretly love to rearrange all my money whenever I get it. I have three different banks I use with seven different accounts in total where I put money for savings and vacation and frequent bills, long-term want, you know, wants. And I even have a bank account for my dog. And whenever I tell anyone about this, especially the dog part, they have a bank account for my dog. Everyone laughs. But I just wanted to get your take on what you think about managing money, if you think I'm getting too into it, or um, if you have any other tips. And um, look forward to hearing your advice. All right. Seven different accounts. You just finished talking about, Mandy, how you have an account within an account. I think there's something to be said about being able to visualize all the different ways you are managing your money, having a bucket for this, a bucket for that. But at some point, does it become a little overwhelming? I think that's really what she's asking here. Is there a way to streamline this and but still, you know, still end up with saving as much as possible? This was totally me two years ago. I had seven savings accounts. <laughs> I was like crazy about it. And I used Wait, I was seven very, bank like, accounts evangelical. across all different they- banks or I had seven savings accounts. There were three at Cap- there were several at Capital One three sixty and then I had a couple at Ally and then I had my like Chase account. I'm, I was all over the place. I still kind of am, but I've I've started I've shifted to we're just having two savings accounts at Ally because for me it just I don't know, I, I just at at that time of my life I needed to watch every penny and I and I wanted to um have a super specific um um savings accounts for different goals and things and it was it was good for me then. You know, I had time to to like manage it and I I enjoyed it. It sounds like she enjoys it too. I was like really nerdy about it. But at this point in my life, it just doesn't really it's not working anymore. You know, I have we're mer- I'm merged finances um partially with my husband now and there's just there's just a lot going on. So for us it was easier just to put everything in one bucket. So now we share um our ally accounts for emergency savings and the down payment savings account. Um so for me it's really just is if this time in your life that works for you to have seven accounts, like whatever works for you. But um, I think most people will just get maybe burned out and just want to simplify things, which is what happened to me. Yeah, this is a really personal question. And so if it works for you, Nicole, and you're not feeling this is cumbersome or hard to track, if this is working for you, it's working for you. 
And congrats on finding something that works for you. Um, There's no rule that says that having seven different accounts across three banks is bad. The only time I would say that's not a great idea is if you are someone who is not organized, kind of is forgetful, um, is a little all over the place. And so you might not track your money that wisely. But also maybe there's a bank in there that's charging you a lot in fees. Could you get rid of that bank and maybe substitute with a different bank that's more fee-friendly? So if you feel that this is working for you and it's um, helping you save better and more, then stick with the program. I think um, there's nothing wrong with that. And then as your life transitions and as your goals change, maybe you find you don't need as many accounts and you can switch it up after that. All right. Good advice, Mandy. Ken, uh, we just finished talking about real estate. He and his wife are also looking to buy a home in the next few months, but he says his wife is about to reduce her work schedule from full-time to three days per week. And she's staying with the same employer and she'll still be getting paid, but it's for a smaller amount. So he wants to know, will lenders look at this as kind of unstable employment and therefore not count any of her earnings towards their eligibility? So can I just say, because I've bought property a few times now and I've done it done it mostly as a freelancer and talk about unstable <laughs> employment, um, the most important thing when you have someone applying for a mortgage who doesn't have, say, a super consistent paycheck, a consistent track record of employment is that um, you have your tax returns from the last, I would say, three years, whereas typical borrowers with you know average jobs may be asked to only have the last two years of tax returns. Your wife may be required to have three years of tax return. She may also want to ask her employer ahead of time, get proactive, ask the employer, her boss, HR, to write a letter that says that even though her work schedule has been reduced, you know, she's a valuable employee. We love working with her and, um, you know, basically write like a kind of a letter of recommendation. And, but mm-hmm. like we talked earlier, most important is that you have savings, that you have good credit and that you have a job too. If you have a job and she has a job, even though she's making a little bit less, but you're not trying to over borrow, I think that that will all go into consideration and hopefully work in your favor. What do you think, Mandy? You cover real estate a lot or have covered real estate a lot in your work as a financial reporter. I do. Yeah, actually, this is another question I ran by my favorite uh, real estate guy who writes for us. And he actually, he's a loan officer by day. This is his day job. And he says that they do consider part-time income as long as, just like you said, Noosh, as long as they have pay stubs and even a letter from an employer talking about the average hours that they work and their hourly rate. And she should be good to go. He actually seemed like it wasn't very, wasn't really anything to worry about. Um, Also, sometimes I've read before that they, uh, lenders or loan officers will like look at an average of your income over the last two to three years. Um, And if she was working full time prior to this change, this recent change, then um, I mean, I think she should be in good shape. And just like if if her husband is earning an income too, then um, yeah, I don't see any reasons why they they would have any problems. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing if she's not working and you want to borrow and co-borrow and it's a loan amount that's maybe a little more than you can handle uh, given the the instability, that's another situation. But I don't think this is anything to be really insecure about. All right. Last but not least, we have a question from Regina and I really love this question, but I'll let you, I'll let you tell us what it is, Mandy. 
Okay. Um, so Regina has a question that I think a lot of people have these days, which is like, what the heck are these things called index funds? And what is the best way to go about investing in them? And is there any way to avoid fees? I think people, you know, it takes, I feel like four to five years before these like big, nasty, like personal finance topics really start to sink in with people. And I feel like I've been writing about index funds for ever since the recession, you know, as like a safe, broad, you know, way to diversify your investments and get into the market. And so it's really exciting for me because I'm getting a lot of questions from people about who are interested in finally figuring out what index funds are and interested enough to maybe change the way that they're saving and investing to incorporate more of them. Um, I love index funds. The easiest, I'm just going to speak from personal experience, but the way that I invest in index funds, because I've always had um, regular jobs with regular incomes working for companies that I have a 401k. So I've set up a target date fund. I've invested through Vanguard into a target date fund, which is essentially like a set it and forget it type of investment account. Um, it's tied to the year that you retire and they essentially um, make your investments a little bit more conservative. The older you get, the closer you get to retirement. So I'm 29 and my, I think mine is 20. I'm in the index, the target date fund tied to like 2055. So as I get older and, and if I continue to invest in this target date fund, they're going to automatically shift my investments for me. Um, and they're also really low fee. I'm pretty sure my expense ratio, and that just means that's the cost of what the what it costs for them to manage your investment for you. I'm pretty sure mine is like 0.12% or something, which is good. Um, I think, isn't it most thing, most people say sort of under 1% is the place you want to be. Um, yes. So there are, yeah, there definitely are low fee options out there. Vanguard is what I invest through, um, but other brokerages have target date funds or, or index fund portfolios to like Fidelity, Charles Schwab is another good one. And, yeah, and also the, the robo-advisors, you know, uh, Betterment, yeah, Wealthfront, exactly. Elevest, um, Charles Schwab has a robo, uh, sort of an automated investment platform. People don't like the word robo. People in the industry don't like the word robo. So I'll I'll spare that. But It's efficient. I take it. Yeah. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's efficient and it's low fee. The caveat being that you don't really get to talk to anybody about your investments, uh, like you may with a financial planner, but in that case, obviously you're paying more, but they specialize in exchange traded funds, index funds. So you're paying a lot less per investment than you would maybe, um, anywhere else, uh, where you might be convinced to, you know, um, bulk up your portfolio with all these other different kinds of actively invested funds. And by the way, now that the fiduciary rule is being phased in, anyone who gives you advice regarding your retirement plan, whether that's a CFP, who's they've always been uh, governed by the fiduciary rule or anybody else, they have to always put your best interest first, meaning they have to present you with options for retirement, investment options, investment products that are um, not just suitable, but actually are results-driven, are not expensive. They're not making crazy, crazy kickbacks and commissions. They can still make a commission, but they have to disclose it to you. So now you have a more sense of like, should I really go this, this route? But that said, you should still do your due diligence and ask if you're going to go through a planner or some, even just through your 401k at work, if they're making recommendations for you, you should ask them, what are the fees? How do you get paid? Don't take it for granted. 
just a little public service announcement because <laughs> it is totally. pretty recent that this fiduciary rule has like started to really make its way into the industry. And by January, hopefully everybody is adhering to this rule. Yeah, this is major because I don't know if you've ever been in a position where you are, you've left a job and you're ready to roll over your IRA to a new one or you're retiring. And that's yeah. where the really the F- the DOL, the fiduciary rule really comes into play because people who retire, this is, you know, the financial industry, this is a huge opportunity for them because they're like, oh, great. These people are going to want to transfer their IRA over to potentially our account. So that's sort of the opportunity that they have is to stick you with funds that, you know, like you said, give them the best reward and may not be best for you. So I'm really excited that this rule, you know, cross fingers crossed that nothing's going to happen before January and it, it, it moves ahead full full steam ahead. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited for that. But one thing I'll say is Regina, I don't know, she doesn't mention how old she is, but if she's wondering about index funds and, and wants to start investing and she doesn't say if she wants to invest for retirement or not or what she what her goal is, but just start as early as possible and you'll be surprised. I mean, I had I had a, a one of my accounts from my first job in New York. I actually kind of left it where it was because I didn't roll it over. I finally did this year, seven years later. Um, no, but this year we had a great market, and I, without even touching it or doing nothing, I've gained six thousand dollars this year. Whoa! Um, just because it was nice. sitting in an account that I opened when I was, you know, four or five years yeah. ago, um, and that was just opening a target date fund, getting those index funds, and like setting it and forgetting it. Mandy, it's been so fun geeking out with you over money. Thanks for coming on our show. And tell us about your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, thanks for having me on. Always nice. And my podcast is called Brown Ambition. It comes on iTunes, wherever you can find, wherever you listen to your podcast. Um, It's called Brown Ambition again. It's a conversation between me and my best money friend, Tiffany, the budget nista Alice. And it's like an irreverent take. It's two girls, two women talking about finance and career. This week, we had an amazing guest um, who, you know, Lynette Calfani-Cox, our favorite, Mm, the money coach. Love her. Came on and we talked about real salary negotiation tips, like no BS, what are some actionable ways you can negotiate? And then Lynette shared a story about her daughter and how her daughter lost a $50,000 college scholarship and Mm. the really brilliant way that her and her husband um, decided to deal with that. So we like to have fun guests on and answer people's questions about money and finance. And again, it comes on every Tuesday um, on iTunes, or you can check us out at brownambitionpodcast.com. Love it. Congrats to you on that show. I remember when you launched it and it's come a very long way. And I'm a big fan of Tiffany, who's also been a guest on this show. And Lynette's been on this show. Really excited for you guys. And uh, how do you like podcasting? Do you think it's going to be something that's going to be around for a while, at least your involvement? I mean, we we started this podcast two years ago. It'll be two years officially in September as just a fun, just something fun and, and like a fun way to connect with with other people like us who want, you know, a fun way to talk about money and career. And honestly, it's been so rewarding. We didn't go into it and we, with any sort of expectations of how many people would download it or any expectations of making money off of it. Um, and I still haven't even monetized it, even though I, you know, keep saying I'm going to look into it. Um, but for me, it's really just enjoyable. And I think because I'm not in it for the money, it's been fun for me. And, you know, I edit it and I produce it myself. We don't have people helping out. Um, and so it's, and we've, I've kept it really simple. So for me, it's, it's not that huge of a time suck, you know, but we only have one episode a week. 
Um, so I'm going to keep doing it as long as we and our listeners keep growing. I mean, it's, I think we're up to, I don't know, this is probably going to sound so small to you, <laughs> but up to 50,000 downloads now um, every month. And that's a huge growth from that's what huge. we had even last year. You know, we're trying, but for, for such like a low, a low. Yeah, but you publish um, what, once a week? That's once a week. Yeah. That's a lot once of people. That's like over 13, what is it? 12,000 people, 12,500 people listening every episode. That's phenomenal. Every month. That's no, you're doing very well. I'm, I'm really proud of it. So for me, it's fun. It's like a side, it's like a hobby. And, you know, I think the hard part is when you really try and make money off of it. And that's where it can get like, maybe not as, I don't know, difficult or I don't know. You, you tell me. I'm sponsor you have- ready. I think you're ready to make some sponsorship money if you haven't already. Um, no, we're, we just started. We had a we had a powwow a couple of weeks ago to start talking about that. So if you have any advice, I'm all ears. Because maybe um, maybe we'll do after like, hours. So many conversation yeah. with you on that. Yeah, I think you're ready. I think that's that's a, a very strong following, and I'm sure your audience loves you a lot and there's a lot of engagement. So that's important. And I would I would start with this. I would start by measuring your audience, sending them a survey and just asking them about who they are, what their interests are, how often they listen, how much they make, where they live. Just get to know your audience because ultimately when you work with sponsors, they're going to want to know really who's the audience. And you probably already have a sense, but to really know definitively based on getting back like 100 or 200 survey questionnaires. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a good guess. Our audience is, they're so vocal and so responsive and they email us all the time. And it's, I don't know, it feels, it feels really intimate and like we have a really good loyal following, which I love. And I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to like jeopardize that and, or tweak or like fiddle with the format of the show too much. But Honestly, if we make money off of it, all I want is just to hire someone else to like edit it and do all the nitty gritty stuff so I can have my Monday nights back, you know? I think podcast listeners by now understand that, you know, it's, it's this labor of love. It's, they're getting all this amazing content for free, right guys, right gals, right? This amazing content for free. If you need to slip in a 30 second ad and you're not charging your listener, I mean, you have to be able to do this and make it work for you. And if that's what it's going to take, then I think that's, I think that's allowed. I think that's, you know, something that your listeners will reconcile with and, and maybe even appreciate because it's a sign that you're growing, you know, and they helped you get to this place. Yeah. Legitimizes a little bit. You know, some people are actually raising money themselves, like just putting up donations. You do a Kickstarter. Yeah. I mean, you could just ask your listeners to donate a dollar. If all your listeners gave a (laughs) dollar, I think that that could be be enough to help you get an editor. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, I've been really, I'm really happy with the, and and kudos to you too. I'm like so excited to see so money continue blowing up. And this is why I have you on the show. That's why I have co-hosts now on Fridays. I want to try to just take it to the next level a little bit. I'd love to have a so money series on the web where we actually do video. Um, But, you know, I'm one person. And if anybody out there has a bigger plans for me and wants to help me (laughs) lift me out of my, uh, my little WeWork office here, or sometimes my bedroom when I podcast, I'd love to go and do this on a bigger stage and just, you know, get it out there. I think these conversations are, are so important, you know, and just like the conversations you have on your podcast. So we'll see. Yeah. Live shows, live shows, 
All right, Mandy, thank you so much. I feel like we forgot that we were <laughs> still recording. Oh, are you we guys are. still there? Okay. Still there. Thank you so <laughs> okay. much. Wishing you all the best. Hope we go. We don't go so long without reconnecting, but you know, you got married. I had a baby. Life happens. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to reconnect and anytime, have me back anytime. <laughs>